Welcome to the Wagging Tails podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Noble Canine, canine behavioural specialists and dog trainers. We provide global online consultations and training, as well as physical training and behavioural rehabilitation within Singapore. Welcome to this episode of the Wagging Tail podcast. This is episode 17. This is the second part of our mini-series on dog reactivity and aggression. Before we start this one, I just want to do a quick recap of episode 15, in which we looked at understanding reactivity and aggression. In this episode was defining reactivity and aggression, recognising signs of reactivity and aggression, and the causes of reactivity and aggression. Yeah, that was a really good episode. We had quite a, quite a lot of feedback on that. People wanted to learn more. That's why we're splitting up into a few parts. Um, today's episode will be us introducing the management strategies for managing dog reactivity and aggression. So that includes your preventative measures, um, what kind of training and behavior modification we would advise, and of course, the tools and equipment that you should think about using for managing dog reactivity and aggression. So we're just going to dive right into this one because it's a big topic and we don't really want to beat around the bush too much about it. So the first segment, we're going to be looking at preventative measures. So one of the biggest points about preventative measures is really early preventative measures. And this is in the form of early socialization and training. It's something that a lot of people don't really understand. Previously, people were always told that socialization was exposing your dog, exposing your puppy to as many different dogs and as many different people and situations as you possibly can. Now, don't get me wrong. Introducing them to many different situations, dogs and people, is not necessarily a bad thing. But it's more about the quality of these introductions rather than the quantity. So whereas we used to have checklists that you used to go down and you tick all the boxes and say, has your dog been introduced to these different breeds? Has your dog been introduced to a man, a woman, a man in a top hat, a man wearing a rainbow vest and all this randomness that you get on these lists. It's more about the quality. And as we'll go on a little bit more later on in the episode, it's about how you're doing the socialization. If you don't create a positive association to that socialization, that can go either way for you. So it's important that appropriate socialization is done as well as early training as well. And when I say early training, I don't mean getting your dog to give a paw, do spins or any cute tricks. I'm talking about training in the way of communicating with your dog. Your dog doesn't speak any human languages and we don't speak dog nearly as well as we'd like to. So having these basic training elements, what we call at Noble Canine, the toolbox 10, these are your ways to communicate with your dog so that you're able to let them know what is expected of them in different situations and so that you can encourage them 
to do the right thing in these different situations as well. Right. So that that's all focusing on your socialization and early training. And it is very important, um, as Frazier said, to start it as early as possible. Of course, even if you don't get a chance to, maybe you adopted a dog when they're slightly older, you can still do it. And I would recommend that you do it as soon as possible. Um, ne next, I'm going to touch about touch on the topic of the importance of positive reinforcement. So there are different types of positive reinforcement. The standard view is, of course, always your treats or you know your food as rewards. It's one of the most common forms of positive reinforcement. You offer your dog a small treat or a piece of food when they perform a desired behavior. That means if your dog is doing the right thing in that particular situation, you offer a piece of food. Uh, treat should be small, easy to consume, something your dog finds tasty. So that's, of course, valuation of different things as well. And then let's say it's the first time your dog is meeting someone that's of a darker skin color. And then your dog is not overexcited and not too scared because it's the first time your dog is meeting that, uh, that person. And then you offer a piece of treat and then they're happy and then everything goes smoothly. The next one would be verbal praise. So dogs respond well to, of course, all of your positive verbal cues. I would say use an encouraging tone. Don't use a cheerful one. Don't get overexcited like, oh, you're such a good boy, good girl. You have to be able to use it in a very realistic scenario whereby if something were to happen, maybe your dog were to escape their harness or leash, you could still use a very normal tone because it's very difficult for us to still have that very overexcited tone under a lot of stress, under a very stressful situation. Like your dog came out of the harness and is running towards the, running onto the road it's very unlikely that you'll be able to still keep that tone and, and ask your dog to recall. So, and also always use similar phrases like you're a good boy or good girl. So you can convey that approval and reinforce the behavior you want. Next type would be affection. Um, many dogs do enjoy physical affection only after you've built the bond, of course. If, if it's a fresh dog that you just got, um, maybe out of the shelter, has some trauma, it's not really open to physical contact, you can't really use that as much, not physically at least, but things like um, gentle petting, um, ear scratches, for, for most dogs is considered a reward for good behavior. So this is especially effective for reinforcing calm and gentle behaviors. The next one, which uh, blue is actually very is blue's highest form of reward is play so some dogs are very highly motivated by play you can use a favorite toy or engage in things like interactive play as a reward for desired action so halfway through my journey of training blue actually not even halfway through i'm not even done what am i talking about um throughout my my journey of, of training blue i realized that her biggest motivator was play so I have maybe some of her favorite toys or even just some new toys that she has never seen before and I keep them with me and then when I want to teach her something new I use I, br I break all that all of that out for timing it's very important that you do immediate reinforcement because dogs like myself have a very short attention span and they learn best when they receive immediate feedback so the reward should follow the desired behavior within a few seconds at most I don't know, Fraser. what do you think? One and a half, two seconds? Yeah, one and a half, two seconds, maximum three seconds is generally right. the thumb. But obviously different dogs require different paces. If you've got a dog with a slightly longer attention span, you've got a little bit more leeway. But 
If you've got a dog with a really short attention span, you might only have maybe a second. One more thing just to point out as well, with the different types of uh, positive reinforcement, is you've got things that are not so common. So, of course, you've got your food, you've got your affection, you've got your physical affection, and you've got play. But on top of that, you've got life rewards. So this is things that you do in real life. So, like, a good example of this would be if your dog is being kept quite close to you for their own safety, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and they do really well. Let's say they're dog reactive. A dog walks past. They don't react then you can reward them by giving them more freedom. That's what we would call a real-life reward. So these are also quite important as well. The other thing you can do is a reward discovery or exploration together. This is quite a great bonding experience, but it's also a reward for your dog. And that can be as simple as scatter feeding. That can be as simple as scent games and things like that. A lot of people only think of those as exercises, but the dogs really enjoy them. So you can use that as a jackpot reward if they've done something that warrants such a reward. The next part of this would be your identification of appropriate behaviors. So number one, you have to be clear. Before you start your training, establish clearly what behavior you want. What exactly does the behavior look like? You have to be very precise in your head. You have to picture it very well. For example, if you're teaching sit, does it mean a straight sit with the butt on the ground? Or is it okay if my dog kind of like limps to one side while sitting down? The second thing is, of course, being consistent. Your consistency is key when identifying your desired behaviors. Everyone involved in training, that means everyone in the household or everyone that, that meets your dog on a, on a very, maybe a daily basis, should agree on the criteria and use the same cues and rewards. Inconsistency will confuse your dog and slow down the learning process. The third thing would be to break down any kind of complex behaviors. So for complex behaviors, break them down into smaller, more manageable steps. And then you can reinforce each step, each step along the way, gradually building up to the behavior that you desire. This is very important when training advanced commands or tricks. Next one would be patience. Of course, if you have no patience, your dog is going to get frustrated. Um, you're going to get frustrated at your dog and then your dog's going to fail too many times and then they just won't be motivated to, to participate in training. So be patient. Give your dog time to understand and perform the desired behavior. Don't rush if progress is slow. Just keep the training sessions short and positive. So if there are too many failures, we always advise our clients to call it for the day, maybe take a, take a break, try again tomorrow or in a few hours if you have the time. When we're looking at that, we've looked at early socialization and training and the importance of positive reinforcement. You might be thinking to yourself, what's this got to do with reactivity? Remember, we're talking about preventative measures. If you're doing preparation or if you're doing preventative for reactivity, make sure that you've got the appropriate set or the appropriate types of cues that you could potentially need. So the big ones there are things like the art of attention. The big ones there are things like being able to do a 180 turn, you know, simple things like that. And the importance of being able to do slightly more complex training elements is so that your dog finds it easier 
to do the, to do those more simple elements which are more important when it comes to trying to prevent any kind of reactivity. So moving on from that, we're talking about something which is a little bit more direct with preventative measures, and that would be setting up safe environments for your dog. So this effectively works in a way that you'd need to look at depending on where you think you would need to prevent it. So when we're looking at this, your dog's already shown some kind of reactivity. So let's say, for example, your dog's being reactive on walks, whether it be with dogs, other people, other animals. At the moment, we're just talking about the preventative measures for that. Structured walks are absolutely paramount here. So that means that you're going to be doing everything from making sure that your dog's activity requirements are being hit. So that might require you to do some scent games in the house before you go for the walk. It might require you to do burnout exercises. It might require you to do real decompression exercises before you go out on the walk so that your dog's in the correct mindset before you leave the house. Then you're going to start looking at being able to do proper thresholds as you're leaving the house. So your dog knows that they can't just rush out on that walk. They've got to go out controlled. Controlled because you are letting them know when it's safe and you're keeping them safe. While you're on the walk, you're wanting to take a look at things that are really quite simple as well. Some people disagree with me on this one, but when you're living in a city, when it's more busy, you've got a lot more animals around, you've got a lot more people around, you've got a lot of blind corners. It's not prudent to let your dog go on a relatively long leash and to be wandering away from you. For a start, it means that you're too far away to let your dog know that you're keeping them safe. So structured walks, you would say, right, when we're walking from point A to point B, I want my dog walking close to me. This comes back to your early training, making sure your dog's more focused on you than anything else. If that's not the case, we'll be talking about tools a little bit later on the podcast. So this is part of the structured walks. On top of the structured walks, you're also going to want to be thinking about defensive leash work. This is when you're making sure that you're doing physical blocking between your dog and that trigger. This is as simple as making sure that when you see another dog or another person or whatever your dog's potential trigger might be, you're switching sides with your dog. So if your dog's walking on your left and there's another dog coming up on your left, you're going to switch it so that your dog is now going to be on your right. This means that you've got a physical block, both visually and physically. This means that your dog feels a lot safer because they don't feel that they are exposed to that trigger nearly as badly. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to fix it, but it is a management technique which is very, very important. There's other defensive leash work, such as being able to remove your dog from a situation quickly by the use of angles and the way that you're guiding your dog with that leash. Now, another part of this structured walk is going to be decompression zones. Yes, you do need to have that structure so that your dog knows that you're keeping them safe. But at the same time, if you're keeping your dog too close all the time, they're not going to feel very relaxed. 
So you've got to identify an appropriate area or appropriate zones on that walk that your dog can decompress just a little bit. I like to call these sniffaries, but realistically it's called decompression exercises or decompression zones within that walk. So this is as simple as when you're anywhere that's got a little bit more open space, but there's a good little bit of greenery that you can use to let your dog have an explore. Give them that length on that leash. Make sure that they're completely loose on the leash and they're able to sniff, they're able to explore, but you have got the ability to look out. You know what's coming. So that means that you can keep your dog feeling safe and relatively stress-free while you're on that walk before going from the next point A to point B. This is setting up that safe environment for your dogs on the walk. If your dog is being reactive within your home, that's when setting up safe spaces is very, very important. And that's things like doing boundary work. It's things like doing bed work. It's things like having a separate room where your dog knows in that room, you do not play, you do not get excited. This is a room for relaxation. And it means when you bring your dog into that room, they are more likely to decompress a lot more quickly and you're going to be able to ensure that they are able to stay calmer than they would do if they were in another area of the house where they might get a little bit more triggered from, I don't know, people passing the door or noises outside your front door, things like that. That's a very good pleasure. The next one that I'm going to cover is, of course, your threshold management, which is identifying your dog's threshold, the point at which they react negatively, right? So the first thing to notice is, of course, every dog has a different threshold for it. You have to be able to fully understand what your dog's threshold is. The first thing to note is, of course, distance. If your dog is reactive, uh, is negatively reacting to another dog, maybe at, let's say, 10 meters away, that is your threshold. You can only start training beyond 10 meters, and then you slowly build it up to be closer and closer. And once you get close enough, that's a whole different exercise together. But if your dog fails too often, let's say you're, you're at 8 meters now, and your dog keeps lunging or keeps barking another dog, you try to go back to 10 meters, and then your dog still reacts negatively. That means your dog has reached his or her threshold. So you would rather just try to try to walk away and then redo your exercises again another time. The best way to notice whether your dog is hitting the threshold or not is by observing their body language. Firstly, you have to pay very close attention to your dog's body language during this situation. Look for all the subtle signs of stress or discomfort that comes with reactivity or aggression. These signs may include things like stiffening of the body, uh, raise heckles, they have dilated pupils, their face gets very tense or their ears are pinned back or they start to pant a lot more. The next thing would be to keep your dog below this threshold during all of your walks and train just to prevent all of these reactions. One thing that I would always advise all of my clients is to have the right equipment when you're doing all of these things, whether it's your walk or whether it's training. We always recommend a dual clip harness, the one that has a clip at the front as well as the back. So you have better control over your dog's movements. Maintain your safe distance, identifying the distance and then stay at a safe distance from triggers, whether that trigger is another person, another dog or whatever it is that might trigger your dog. 
Third would be your leash management. Keep your dog on a leash during your walks to prevent them from approaching any triggers or escaping if, if their reaction is too flea. So using a fixed length leash rather than a retractable one for more control because a retractable leash always has pressure on it. And it's very difficult to redirect your dog when you're using a retractable leash compared to a dual clip leash. So then we look at environmental management. I've talked about this at length, not just with reactivity, but in general. Many of you listening will probably know that uh, we have our little girl, Freya, and as a result, environmental management in my house is absolutely paramount. Not so much so that Freya's kept safe from the dogs, but more so the dogs are kept safe from Freya. Yeah, she marches to the beat of her own drum, and as much as I love that about her, at the same time, it can make her quite unpredictable to the dogs. And she has only two, so it's not as if we're not doing our best to educate her as well. She's actually doing very well with this. However, the environmental management is incredibly important. Now, imagine if you just switched that. Let's say the dogs were being reactive towards the child. The same apply. So this comes to things that you're going to be doing to ensure that you're getting minimum exposure to that trigger. If it's within your home, if it's a child, if it's a member of the family, if it's lunging and barking at guests coming through the door, you're going to want to control your dog's environment to minimise that exposure. Now, whether that be safe spaces within the house, as I mentioned earlier on, or it could be actually ensuring that your dog has zones of the house that they are allowed to have free reign and areas of the house that they're not. So that can mean segregating areas of the house where your dog's not necessarily allowed to be. Of course, personally, I would say make sure your house is large enough if you're doing this kind of thing. But controlling that environment is very, very important. To do this effectively, you're wanting to use barriers, whether this be simply closing a door, baby gates, window coverings to reduce visual triggers if they're barking or reacting to things outside. All of these things are incredibly important to try and reduce the exposure to that trigger. Now, as much as this is basic management, you've got to understand that there's also something called extinction. And if the dog doesn't get that exposure, they will eventually stop reacting. Now, this is a very long, drawn-out way of doing it. In fact, it's so drawn-out that it's not something I actually recommend. But having that environmental management in place can be a huge, huge benefit. There is one dog that I've got in mind with regard to this, um, and he was a beagle. And as many of you may know, beagles love to bark. They love to howl. And this beagle was no exception. Anything that that dog saw out of the window was something that he wanted to react to. And as a result, one of the first things I said when I walked into that house was, you're saying that you've got this issue, you're saying that you want to get it solved, but you've got a literal step stool up so that the dog can look out the window and you've got very clear windows around the bottom where your dog can see. So all you need to do, remove that step stool and put temporary coverings 
along the bottom of the window so that your dog's no longer getting that exposure. Now that, on top of what we're about to talk about, on top of the training and behaviour modification, is how they manage to get such good results with that beagle. Again, as we're about to start talking about, it's all about consistency. So a lot of people will get professional help. A lot of people will go through the motions of learning about the exercises, learning about the behaviour modification, learning about the training, but they're not consistent, so they don't get the results. And that is going to move us on to the next segment, which is training and behaviour modification. Now, before I pass it back to Jay, I'm just going to discuss something that's very, very important about this section. Having a professional behavioural trainer, behavioural specialist or veterinary behaviourist is really important during this section. You can give it a shot yourself. Please do. We're going to go through this and hopefully people are going to have a good idea about what to do. But every dog is different and that's where professionals come in. So instead of just trying generic information on this, you're best to get somebody that's able to pinpoint exactly what's going on with your dog. That way you're able to get a lot more swift results when you're dealing with situations like that. With the positive association, I'll just give a great example of that with my boy Porthos. Because reactivity is not just aggression, it's not just um, something that could be potentially dangerous. It could be something as simple as being overexcited. And Porthos is a great example of that. He used to get wildly excited every time he saw another dog. Every time he saw somebody that he knew, he got overexcited as well. So what I used to do, and sometimes still do have it with me just in case, is a tennis ball, something super simple. The moment he, see, he saw another dog, I would bounce the tennis ball, redirecting him back to me. That gave him a positive association that every time he saw another dog, instead of getting overexcited with the dog, he was refocused on to me to play. That's a very good example of positive association. This moves us on very, very briefly, which we'll touch on, is clicker training. Now, I won't go into this in massive depth because it is a big topic. However, clickers are effectively just a secondary reinforcer. I've spoken about that at length in other episodes, I know, but effectively it's a learned reward. A good example of that in human life is money. If you didn't know about money, it wouldn't mean anything. It's something you've got to learn. This shows you how powerful secondary reinforcers can be. And as a result, similar to what I was talking about with the ball, if you had conditioned that secondary reinforcer of the click, you've got something that's incredibly consistent and it's a very distracting and striking noise. So even if your dog is ultra-focused on something, they're still going to hear it. So at the same timing... If Porthos looked at that dog and he was about to get overexcited, or if there was another dog that was looking at the dog, looking at the cat, looking at the person, whatever the trigger is, having that click in that correct position, that correct timing, is going to redirect your dog because you have rewarded the behavior before they react. And that is a very powerful counter-conditioning technique. 
All right. So the next part I want to talk about is your operant conditioning, which was a term coined by Professor Skinner. You guys can go search up on it. Basically, it's it's about the four quadrants of uh, operant conditioning, which is your positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, your positive punishment, and negative punishment. So for us here at Noble K9, we do not use negative reinforcement. We do not use positive punishment because that is creating discomfort or pain for your dog. I'm only going to be touching on the two that we actually use. And of course, we feel that it's the best ones that you should be using. Your positive reinforcement, we've talked about this many times. In positive reinforcement, a desirable stimulus is added or given to your dog immediately after the desired behavior. So this encourages the behavior to occur more frequently. For example, giving a treat to your dog when they're sitting down when asked is positive reinforcement. Very straightforward, very easy. Next one was negative punishment. So negative punishment is the removal of a desirable stimulus that you have added when they show an undesired behavior. So this removal will decrease the likelihood of the behavior repeating in the future. For example, um, Fraser was talking about a beagle that was barking out the window. So Blue reacts out the window as well. She usually sits, it's my fault, I know. She sits by the sofa that's right next to the, the window and then she looks out and then she sees another dog, she barks. All I did to train this was um, use negative punishment. So I sat by the, the sofa with her. We looked out the window for a, a good 30 minutes during a very busy period where people are walking their dogs. Every time she started barking, I just closed, I just drew the blinds. That's all. That's the punishment you use. And then when she calms down, I open it again. If she starts barking, I close it again. Eventually, she just understood that, you know what, this is undesired behavior, and I'm not going to repeat this. From that, we're then going to look at desensitization techniques. So just as a little bit of a clarity here, counter conditioning is when you actively counteract or counter condition, which kind of says in the name, the trigger. Desensitization is effectively systematic. It's the exposing your dog to the trigger in a controlled and gradual manner. So you're monitoring your dog's reactions, you're adjusting the level of exposure so that your dog's not reacting. And this one, you don't actually need to be rewarding your dog. It does take a little bit longer, but it is just as effective. And what I normally suggest is people do them both at the same time. How you would actually control that exposure. So you've got to identify what the trigger is actually going to be. So if it's sound, then the volume is going to be something that you're going to be able to control. Whether that be going onto YouTube and finding the noise which triggers your dog, whether it be recording that noise which triggers your dog, or whether it be creating barriers between your dog and that noise so that you are able to effectively mute or reduce that noise so that you're able to desensitize them to it. If it's visual, as you might think, it's distance. So if your dog is being triggered by being too close to strangers or being too close to another dog or another animal, you would start off greater distance and slowly start to bring that forward. Now, it's important to understand when you're doing desensitizations that you are monitoring your dog's reactions and adjusting to your dog's level. You cannot dictate how quickly you can desensitize your dog. If I had a dollar for every time I've advised people to do desensitization, 
and I've explained it much quite similar and probably more in depth than I have just there. And the next week or the next couple of days, I'll get a message saying, okay, we've done the desensitization. And I'll say, okay, can you uh, either book a session or can you send a video of the result? And the dog's sitting there absolutely petrified. Said, oh, but they're not barking. So that's the desensitization done. It's not a competition. It's not a race. Desensitization is about ensuring that your dog feels comfortable, ensuring your dog is no longer being triggered by that stimulus. So it's very, very important that we do this. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to talk a little bit about some dogs that we've worked with. Uh, not, Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about too many because that would be very time-consuming. But um, one that comes to mind is a dog, Poncho. Now, I've got permission to talk about the client here, so I will. But Poncho's uh, adopter, now guardian, Lay, when she first fostered who was then Brownie, he was incredibly dog reactive and incredibly reactive to people coming into the house. She was very consistent. And I know even to this day, she's very good at the maintenance work, which is required moving forward. And as a result, Poncho is now able to not just tolerate other dogs, but he's able to play with other dogs. He's able to go to the dog park. But with that in mind, they still keep an eye on it because that's very, very important. Another dog that I'll talk about is a dog, Lupo, who is a lovely, lovely little uh, Cavalier Spaniel. Now, Lupo was not reactive in the way that he was lunging, barking or anything like that. He was reactive in the way that he was very, very scared of other dogs. So it meant that when he was on walks, his walks were very disrupted because every time he saw another dog, he would panic and try to run away home. Now, by using what we've spoken about previously with the counter conditioning, the desensitization, but also defensive leash work, the structured walks, this was very important with Lupo's rehabilitation. And now I can very happily state that Lupo enjoys his walks immensely and he's actually very good around other dogs and has a lot more doggy friends than he did before. And he's able to enjoy life and be comfortable in the environment that he's in. And last but not least, I'll talk about very briefly, my boy, Athos. Now, anybody that's listened to episode one of the podcast will know his story, but Athos is the one that got me into this world. And it was simply because he was so dog reactive that he was injuring other dogs and basically sending them to the vet. It was very stressful for him, very stressful for me and very stressful for anybody that was around us. And as a result, that journey was incredibly important to me and it's incredibly precious to me when I'm talking about this. And the reason I'm talking about this now is because when we were talking about operant conditioning, when Jay was talking about that, personally, I don't say that it's a preference. I say with professional experience as well as personal experience, that the use of fear, the use of discomfort and pain and force, when you're dealing with reactivity, is a surefire way to make it worse. Now, you might get immediate results or quick results in the short term, but you're just suppressing that reactivity. You're suppressing that reaction. 
the underlying emotion, the underlying fear is still present. That's not been fixed when you are suppressing that behavior. So when using the operant conditioning, we very, very firmly advise positive reinforcement. That's the biggest way forward. And when required, negative punishment, which is removing your dog from the area, removing something that their dog sees as positive. It's not about physical punishment. You're not adding anything bad to your dog. And that is incredibly important. Okay, on to the next segment, which is um, what kind of tools and equipments you can use to manage your dog's reactivity and aggression. So I touched a little bit on this earlier, which was the dual clip harness, the one with the front clip. That is just ergonomic for dogs that pull a lot of dogs that are very reactive on walks because with the clip at the front, when used properly, if your dog were to lunge or to pull, Fraser actually has a really good video with Portos on this one. Um, when they pull forward, they're going to be turned along whichever side that you're standing beside your dog. So if they lunge, they can even do a 180 and then face directly back at you. So this not only disengages them, this forces them to look back at you. And then you being responsible enough, you should be able to bring your dog away or to break the hyper-focus that your dog is on the trigger. So the next tool we're going to be talking about is no pull harnesses. Now, there's a quite a large array of different designs and things like that. I don't like the idea of the tool doing all of the work. Now, when you're using the dual clip or the front clip, as Jay spoke about there, it's important that you use the tool properly. Don't get a tool and just rely on it. We're going to be talking about the pros and the cons of all of these tools. The pros of that front clip that Jay was talking about is when used properly, it works well. When used incorrectly, it doesn't work well. So that's important. With the no-pull harnesses, they claim that anybody can use it and get the results. However, the no-pull harnesses, a lot of the time, will constrict around your dog's rib cage. That's effectively the same as a slip leash or a martingale or a semi-choke, but instead of going around the neck, it goes around the rib cage. So that's applying discomfort to try and get your dog to stop pulling in that certain direction. So although it can be used by some people, and a lot of people will swear by it, if you're talking about a reactive dog, if your dog is reacting because of stress, reacting because of fear, adding pressure onto that dog's ribcage is going to make that worse. Right. So the next one is the head collars, which is your gentle leaders, the, the kind that you put over your dog's muzzle and then around their neck. So th these are good to provide control over the head movement. So it does reduce pulling because if you were, if your dog were to pull while on a head collar, they would have, they would, their hips would turn. But at the same time, the cons of this would be that you're straining your dog's neck because every time they do a sudden lunge, it could be, it could actually damage their, their neck. They could get injured by that. I've very rarely recommended this for my clients. I have one or two that because their dog is so large and powerful and they are a lot smaller in stature that I would say that, oh, you know what? Have the, the front clip harness as well as the head collar just so that you have more 
control and then you don't get pulled off your feet because some of my clients have actually really been pulled off their feet and then they suffered quite a bit of injuries because of that. Well, when Athos was quite young in the early stages of his journey, my wife was actually pulled into a drain. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because he was just on a rear-clipped harness. And this is when people say that the harnesses create pulling. But the, the tools don't create pulling. It's the, the handler that creates pulling or the handler that discourages it. So that's a very important point about the head collars as well. Again, when used correctly, it can be really good. When it's not used correctly, it can be quite damaging. And that's very, very similar to the martingale collars that we're going to be talking about here. The reason I'm talking about martingale collars and not full choke collars or slip leashes is because, quite frankly, there is a use for martingale collars when it comes to managing reactivity. I do not believe that full chokes and slip leashes should be used for rehabilitation or training. Yep, when you're rescuing a dog, when you've got a dog that has not been shaped to a collar or a harness, you have got to use something that's easy to go on and off. That's the only time that I would use a slip leash. However, the martingale collars, as much as I do not use them for the primary tool, it's important to think about how to stop your dog from bucking or pulling out of a harness. Because I don't care how good your harness is, your dog can find a way to buck out of it if you are not good enough with your leash control. If you're really good at your leash control, your dog's never going to get out of the harness. If you don't know what to do, that's when it happens. However, if you've got that martingale on and it's correctly fitted, and you've got a double clip which goes between the martingale and the harness, if the dog manages to slip out of the harness, that's when the martingale engages and stops your dog from actually getting away. As much as that does cause discomfort, we are not using that as a rehabilitation tool. We're using that as a safeguard. This could save your dog from getting seriously hurt because If your dog runs up to another dog and gets reactive, what if that dog is a much larger dog? What if that dog's also very reactive? It can end up in very serious dog fights. And that's not something that you want to risk at all. Right. So just to add on to that, like the slip leashes is pretty much the same thing. You don't use it to to try to correct a dog's behavior. It is purely for, for safety. And apart from your dog getting out of the harness and then running up to another reactive dog, what if your dog runs out of it, gets so spooked, and then tries to run onto the highway and then gets hit by a car? So these are very realistic scenarios that could happen. So please consider all of your options first. And if you really do need the extra security, you can use any of these. Okay, the next one is the body wrap. So things like your thunder shirts or your happy hoodies, calming blankets, things that provide very light but constant pressure on your dogs can help them calm down, can help them with their anxiety or their reactivity, but only at a control in a controlled environment. So body wraps, good, but it still does not solve the issue. So you, you can't 
always go, oh, you know what, it's going to rain today. Even if you're really on top of the weather reports and the forecast, you can't just prepare a thundershirt every time you want to. You have to be able to get your dog calm and then do some desensitization or counter conditioning with whatever triggers there are or whatever reactivity issues you have. Now we come on to something that everybody knows about, and this is muzzles. Muzzles have got a bad rap. I honestly feel that every single dog should be shaped to a muzzle. You should be able to put a muzzle on your dog without them stressing out. Some people say, oh, no, I don't like the idea of that. Well, do remember that accidents happen. And if your dog, let's say, touch wood, won't happen. But if your dog breaks a leg, you can't explain to your dog that the vet is there to help. So your dog's now in a clinic. The vet is now handling that broken bone. It's painful. The dog's confused. The dog's frustrated. The dog's really getting trigger stacked. If they're not in a muzzle, the vet might just insist on not treating the dog because they don't want to get bitten because you can't explain to them what's going on. Muzzle training and muzzle shaping is really, really important. With reactive dogs, even more so. Now, I always advise using a basket muzzle simply because it allows the dog to pant, allows them to drink. It allows you to actually give treats through the muzzle. And that's very, very important as well so that you can still work on the rehabilitation, on positive reinforcement, while your dog is wearing that muzzle. It means that you've got that extra layer of protection. It means that you know that your dog's not going to maul another dog or a person or anything like that, on top of you knowing how to handle them. Because you wouldn't put your dog in a situation where that's a high likelihood. So... Muzzles can be useful for safety during training and socialization. They can be good for making sure that you feel that little bit safer with your dog, but they must be shaped. You can't just slam a muzzle on a dog. You've got to make sure that your dog is comfortable having that muzzle on. Right. So both my girls are muzzle shaped as well, because some of you might know that they've really gotten into pretty bad fights with each other but how you shape the muzzle is very important. My girls see the muzzle as a reward. If I take it out, they actually get excited. You can see their tails wagging. They want to put their, their noses right inside the muzzle because of how you shape it. That matters a lot. So a muzzle can be a reward as well, can be seen as a reward at least. Right. So the next one is very standard. It's your leashes. So your standard leash or your long leash, whichever one it is. A lot of people, bless your heart, you guys want to get a very long leash so that your dog can explore, can roam around and basically just be a dog, especially in Singapore, whereby, you know, we have all the leash laws. However, giving your dog a long leash before shaping it or before training your dog with a long leash can create a lot of issues. So first I'll talk about standard leash, which is just your normal length of a leash that you can clip to wherever, mostly it's just their collars. It's used for a lot of control during your training sessions or on walks, right? Can you, with the short, uh, the, the length of a standard leash, get your dog to come back to you and walk nicely next to you? If you can, then you start using a longer leash and then 
maybe your dog walks beside you very nicely, your dog can walk a few steps ahead of you very nicely and can still be recalled back and then you slowly create the distance until you're at the end of the long leash. If you want to shape your dog for a long leash, you have to do it in small increments. I wouldn't immediately jump to the end of the leash. I made that mistake with Blue at the start. So learn from my mistake because it, it was a lot more work to get her used to being uh, walking right next to me, walking nicely, and then giving her the freedom of the, the full length of the long leash. So the last thing we're going to talk about within the tools is calming aids. So this is products like the Adaptal Pheromone Diffusers or the Calming Collars or things like uh, 5-HTP, L-Tryptophan, which are supplements that you can put in your dog's food. If you're in a country where you're allowed to do this, CBD oil and CBD treats are also quite good at just helping reduce that anxiety in some dogs so that you're able to manage that reactivity while you're going through the rehabilitation and training with your dog. This also leads us to another very big point, which we're not going to talk about too much at length in this episode. It's something we will touch on on the next episode, but I'll also like to try and get somebody on who's a little bit more of an expert in it, and that is behaviour modification drugs. I don't think it's fair for us to be talking about that. We're better to get somebody on that's a specialist in that pharmaceutical aspect of behavioural shaping. But with the calming aids, like the adaptive diffusers, like the collars, like the supplements, these can be very, very useful. However, one of the biggest drawbacks with that is that people tend to use it as a crutch. That's not what it is. This is management. Management is what you should be doing while you're going through the behavior modification and the training. So as with all of these tools, there is great pros to them. However, if you do not use them appropriately, they can either become dangerous, they can become ineffective, or they can become crutches. And you want to avoid that at all costs. Because at the end of the day, you've got to remember what you're trying to do. You're trying to ensure that your dog is comfortable in the environment that we have put them in. That's the biggest thing to take away from talking about these tools. And that comes to our conclusion of this part two of our dog reactivity and aggression episode. We will have a part three. So here are some key points to take away from this episode as well. For reactivity and aggression in dogs, look out for the signs of reactivity and aggression, such as your body language, your barking, your vocalization, whining, stiffness, leash control. There are some measures that you should be reinforcing immediately when you get your dog, whether they have been they have shown any signs of uh, reactivity or aggression or not, which is your early socialization, starting your training early, always use positive reinforcement have gradual exposures, think about your desensitization and counter-conditioning work, and of course, avoid punishing your dog. So that concludes this episode, and we hope it has been useful. Please remember, guys, 
that if you do have any concerns or questions, it's a good idea to reach out. It doesn't need to be us, but reach out to a professional if this is something that you're struggling with as well. On the next episode with regards to dog reactivity and aggression, which will be coming out on the 15th of next month, we are going to be looking at the rehabilitation of dog reactivity and aggression. That's our part three. In this, we're going to be looking at the role of professional help. We're going to be looking at real life success stories and how it was actually done. And we're going to be looking at long-term maintenance and a future outlook of what it looks like having a previously reactive dog and with the knowledge that that's a journey that you've been through. Thank you guys for listening. You can tune into our Facebook Live every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Singapore time, and you can join us to ask us anything you want on that Facebook Live. We also do in-person consultations as well as online consultations. Be on the lookout for our upcoming online courses as well, which will be released hopefully by the end of the year. And just before we go, guys, if you've been listening to this episode, we would like to give you a discount code for those online and in-person consultations. So if you put in to your pre-consultation form the word Porthos, that's P-O-R-T-H-O-S, you will get an additional 5% discount off of that consultation. So take advantage of that. Watch out for Facebook Lives. Follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. It's something that not only helps us, but it also is a great way to get information for you guys. And last but not least, if you enjoy this podcast and if you want to help support us, we do have a Patreon that you'll find on the show notes. And we would be incredibly grateful if that was something that you were wanting to be involved in. But with that said, guys... We will talk to you next time and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wagging Tale.